Hello and welcome to UK Wildlife Podcast. I'm Neil Phillips and I'm afraid Vic can't join us today, but we are joined by Professor Helen Roy. Hello, Helen. Hi, it's lovely to be here. And we start traditionally with our latest sightings. So, Helen, have you had any interest in wildlife sightings? Well, I was really excited because I'm always on the lookout for 16 spot ladybirds in little cracks and crevices on fence posts. And the other day I was rewarded and saw quite a few. So I was just tremendously excited to see these little mildew feeding tiny little ladybirds. Oh, lovely. Yeah, I've, I've had a few myself at work on, a, on an old rickety bridge full of crevices and cracks and they're all over it and they're quite clever where they hide aren't they because these ones sit above the flood lines so the whole floodplain around them has <laughs> been submerged three times this winter they've been happy as Larry about a meter above the water so uh, oh it's incredible oh. it's lovely to see them and they do like those sort of slightly damper places mm, that makes sense doesn't it lots of mildew although weirdly I always find that weird about mildew is it's a fungus but it grows on plants that lack water which I've never quite understood how that works um but yes uh well, I suppose better do my sightings my frogs have spawned in the pond which is always a good sign and I've had a I think I've got up to four or five clumps of spawn although some of my frogs have got blue spots or some sort of infection on them but they seem to be moving around okay my grown-up tadpoles from last year are still in there which is rather interesting and at work a great white egret's been flying around which is rather cool that does sound amazing yeah not usually that far inland in Essex that's rather good you see red kites over here so I'm home working at the moment and um, just yeah watching the red kites is is very entertaining yeah they never fail to just amaze me they're so beautiful oh they are good yeah we get the old one in Essex at the moment they're still notable but they're getting a few buzzards flying around and at work I'm getting a pair of ravens which is rather cool yeah that is and um, my colleague saw one with a stick flying towards the direction of my work so <laughs> we're all sort of <laughs> eyes eyes upwards on the pylons or wherever they might nest at the moment today's topic for anyone that knows who professor helen roy is <laughs> probably not be surprised it's ladybirds which is uh, well it must be your specialist subjects as you might describe it helen um, describe it as my obsession oh, obsession yeah <laughs> <laughs> But for those that don't know you, Helen, could you introduce yourself, explain what you do and uh, who you are, etc.? So I'm an ecologist and I'm based at the UK Centre for Ecology and Hydrology. And I'm a research ecologist, so I take on lots of projects of various kinds, but have a particular interest in how environmental change is affecting wildlife. But in my spare time, well, one thing is I'm president of the Royal Entomological Society, which is a tremendous privilege. But I also lead the UK Ladybird Survey as a volunteer scheme organiser. And that's just absolutely fantastic hearing from people all across the country sending in their sightings of ladybirds and their stories of ladybirds and just wonderful to gather all of that information and and I've been leading that survey since 2005 and still enjoy it just as much if not more and more every day. Yeah I've, I've, I've mentioned before on this podcast that I'm the Essex Dragonfly Recorder and even on a county scale it's amazing to see what's popping up where you know especially when I couldn't, couldn't really go out quite so much okay but this time you could go out a little bit but if you're busy doing other things you can't get out but when you see other people you sort of almost see the sightings vicariously don't you enjoy them from you know oh, oh wow yeah. that's, that's been seen there like yeah, it's really good right. yeah it is it's wonderful to see the sightings coming in it does give you that sort of snapshot across the country of mm. what's happening in the ladybird world so talking of ladybirds what is a ladybird So a ladybird is a small to medium-sized beetle, and they're often quite round. And 
if you get really close up to them, they have 11 segments to their antennae. And also another characteristic of ladybirds is their number of toes. So if you look at their tarsi, you should, which you would, I mean, I can't get that close in terms of being able to count the tarsi. But if we were taxonomists in a museum or with our microscopes, we would be able to see that they have four little toes at the four little segments at the end of their legs. And those are the characteristics that make a ladybird a ladybird. Oh, wonderful. So some ladybirds, I mean, most people know them as the small round spotty ones, but they're not all those lovely, colourful spotted coloration are they there's some that are no bit... there's not there's some that are really tiny and brown and slightly hairy and actually one of my favorites is called nephus quadrimaculatus and it occurs on ivy quite often on sort of walls where it's getting quite warm if the the sun is shining on ivy on a wall it's worth taking a look and you might see racing around at really high speed a tiny beetle that's maybe about one and a half millimeters and with the sun shining on them you can see their four bright red spots but if you get a little bit closer you will see that they're really quite hairy little beetles and they're just absolutely exquisite so there's quite a few of the ladybirds that look like that they're tiny and they're brown our smallest one looks if you were to draw a dot on the page in front of you um, you would have pretty much drawn that little ladybird which is absolutely tiny but most people are of course familiar I think the most iconic ladybird probably is the seven spot ladybird coxnell Punctata, which is that bright red one with the three spots, three black spots on either wing case and one kind of just behind the head that makes the seventh spot. And that's the, the very common ladybird that people often think of as being a ladybird. Yeah, definitely. Now, they're obviously, they're quite a diverse group because we've got quite a few species in the UK, haven't we? Yeah, we have. So we have 47 and I often say about 47 and I'm, I'm right in saying that because you think, how does she not know whether there's 47 or 48? But it's a constantly changing picture. So for example, very recently, we started to see one of these little tiny ladybirds called Rhizobius forestieri cropping up more and more and more. So it is a slightly changing picture with a few new additions every few years. But yeah, 47 is a, is, um, a reasonable estimate. And then there are others. I mean, the 13 spot ladybird, it kind of comes and goes. So we think it recolonizes from mainland Europe and then goes extinct and then recolonizes again. And it can have several years where it's sustaining populations and then goes extinct again in the UK and then recolonizes. And we think at the moment, though, that there are um, in um, Sussex some populations of the 13-spot ladybird. But that's just to give you the background as to why when I say 47, I often say sort of about 47. Oh, yes. Well, oh, the 13 one doesn't have much luck colonizing then. That just shows, <laughs> once again, how well-named, arguably ladybirds are the best-named insects and England, aren't they? Didn't they get someone to name them all? And they're very good names, like the pine ladybirds on pine. And the, yeah, actually, it's funny you say about the spots. pine because the pine ladybird is probably the one the of the the worst named. Yeah, ones the bird, bird, bird example. Yeah, heather ladybird's a good one. So it was um, Professor Mike Majerus from Cambridge University who, in the 1980s, decided that it was time to make ladybird recording as popular as possible. So there had been a ladybird recording scheme hosted through the Biological Record Centre, which is part of the UK Centre for Ecology and Hydrology, where I work. And there'd been a ladybird or a coxanellidae, so that's their family name, recording scheme since the early 1970s. But really, the wonderful people who were contributing to that survey were the sort of esteemed entomologists who knew and were recording many, many other beetles. It wasn't really a sort of mass participation activity by any means. 
campaigns. And in the, the 1980s, Professor Mike Majurus ran a few campaigns with the local wildlife trust and got on the television and advertised a lot that he wanted to receive records of ladybirds. And the public started to get really involved in a big way. And at that point, the ladybirds didn't have common names, or well, not all of them did. I'm sure we were calling the seven spot ladybird the seven spot ladybird, but there were many that didn't have those names. And so, yeah, he just went through and, and named them all. And actually, when we produced our recent field guide, so I lead the survey with Dr. Peter Brown from Anglia Ruskin University, and we have um, recently published a field guide with the wonderful Richard Lewington. And we decided that we would give all of the inconspicuous, we call the little tiny brown ones with the hairy ones and they're black as well, the little tiny ladybirds anyway, the inconspicuous ladybirds, we gave them all common names. And we went out to quite a few entomologists and sort of asked them, what did they think? What would they call them? And Richard Lewington had the great idea to bring in part of their scientific name into their common name. And so, for example, Nephus, the Nephus quadrimaculatus, we've called it the four-spotted Nephus. It just means, in some ways, I think it does make it more accessible for people. But I think it's also absolutely fine to use the scientific names. And I'm sure I don't pronounce them all correctly. And I think people still understand. So I don't think we have to worry too much about how we pronounce them if we want to use those names as well. And I certainly don't think the ladybirds mind. It's quite interesting in the world of entomology how people view common names because some people are like, oh, well, children say dinosaur names. And they're kind of like, yeah, but they're dinosaurs. They're not tiny little inconspicuous beetles. It's hard to you know, get engagement from them. And... Yeah, I think if we want entomology to be open for yeah. everyone, we need to make it accessible. And for some people, it's accessible if, if we use scientific names. And for others, it's accessible if we use that little teeny tiny ladybird that I was telling you about is called Dothorus pusillus, but we've given it the name the dot ladybird because it is like a little dot. And if that makes it more accessible and more people take the time to have a look for it and tell us about it, then that's got to be a good thing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's the same with everything. So like the Acillus Oh, I wouldn't have pronounced it properly as well, doesn't help. Can carb, oh, whatever the hell it, robber fly. This is much easier to say for a start. And it sounds so cool. Oh, hornet and robber fly. Oh, that sounds quite, you know, and the same with ladybirds. Oh, what's that ladybird we find on Heather? Oh, Heather ladybird. Well, that's nice and easy to remember. So it just helps you with memorizing the names as well. And obviously, I do environmental education. And if I'm dealing with children and I wouldn't say disinterested, but only slightly interested adults, if I say, oh, yes, that formica rufa, and they'll be like, what? All right. And if I say, oh, that's a wood ant, they're like, oh, oh, yeah, oh, I can understand that. That's great. It's just, it's that whole public engagement thing as well, isn't it? There's a, a bit of value there, I think, with those things. Yeah, absolutely. I think it is important. I think, this, you know, with recording as well, it's important to offer people all kinds of different ways to send in their records. So some people will want to use smartphone apps such as the iRecord app, and other people want to log online and, and record in a notebook when they're out and about and then come back and put their records online in an online recording form. Others are going to gather them in a spreadsheet over the course of a whole year and then send their spreadsheets to someone. Other people are going to maintain their own, own databases or just keep them in notebooks. And I think what's really wonderful about natural history is the diversity of people who are involved and along with that diversity has to come a diversity of approaches to engage people. Yeah, fully agree, fully agree. Um, well, linked into that, uh, Claire Moo, um, that's Claire Moo one on Twitter, asked, I find many different sorts of ladybirds in my garden. Is there any value in recording them? If so, where and how? 
So absolutely there is. And people will often say, but I'm seeing a seven spot ladybird every day. Do you really want to hear from me every day? And my answer is absolutely. I want to hear from you every day and have all your records as much as is possibly convenient for that person to do so. And when you think of all of the ways that these records can contribute to our understanding of ecology, but also informing policy and informing conservation, there's so many ways in which those records have provided a use and have been so valuable over, over decades now. Yeah. People ask me that, do you want me to record every blue-tailed damselfly? And I say to them, look, I don't expect you to, but if you want to, please do, because every bit of data is valuable to some degree, isn't it? And oh, absolutely. The, one of the best examples I saw was something like the Mammals of London or something like that. Um, they did a book. And according to that, the brown rat was found on only a, a handful of places <laughs> yeah. in London because no one bothered to record it. No. Oh, everyone knows they're there. But they didn't have the record, so they couldn't officially, even though they knew they were probably in all the squares, they couldn't say they were. You know, Even yeah, the middle of the that, Thames probably had them. You know. That's a really excellent example of, of, of why it's so important to record the common species and the rarities as well. Record everything. And I think it's, you know, it's wonderful for people as well, I hope, to look back then over their records and, and they can begin to see their own patterns and trends in, in their own garden even or their own locality where they might be walking around. And I think it's just magical to see all those records building up. Yeah, so I always... I mean, I think you probably find the same. You get a glut of the common stuff when they first come out and then it peters off. But I'm probably just as guilty of recording that way as well myself. Oh, you see, uh, I am I am genuinely quite obsessional. When, we're, when uh, we're out walking, when I'm out walking with my family, I'm trying to record literally every seven spot. And of course, there are times of the year when that means <laughs> that you walk very, very slowly along a particular path or track because there's literally one every every few metres. Oh, yeah, you find a nettle bed. It's like, oh, yeah, we'll come back and find Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm a, I like have a camera at the start of the season as well. I mean, that's one of my biggest problems is it's kind of recording my iPhone while trying to take a picture at the same time. Never quite, never quite works, but um, I always try and do it afterwards once I've taken the photo. Oh, yeah, it's, I think it's probably the most especially important time is if you think it's the first one recorded in the area as well, isn't it? That's always a, a good thing to do. But yeah, like we say, however many you can do, please do the recording. Yeah, um, no, absolutely. Is, is I record the best place for ladybirds, would you say? or So I record is absolutely fantastic because Pete and I take a look at the records that are coming into I record on a really regular basis. And if somebody's um, submitted a photo with their sightings, we'll very, very quickly check it out. And if there is a misidentification, we'll let them know what the species is that they've seen and, and why there's a confusion, because it can be confusing. And, and actually, I think there's a lot to be learned from making mistakes at times. So we will help people out with their identification and also then verify those records as quickly as possible. So so iRecord is a really, really fast way for us to get that data coming through and being used very rapidly. But, you know, if people want to send in spreadsheets, that, that's fine too. Equally, you know, sometimes people will send a record through on Twitter for me to identify and then they put it into iRecord. But I mean, for me personally, I'm using the iRecord app all the time now when I'm out and about. And that is my, that is my recording approach. Yeah, me too. It's just so easy. You just do it there and then because I'm terrible for going, I'll make sure I record that later. And especially if it's a new site, I'll be, oh, where was that? Or it'd be four weeks later, I'll look at the photo and go, 
Are we on the reserve? Was that again? I can't remember. And then to put in a yeah <laughs> a two a two figure grid reference. Or oh, I totally find easy. it it's so satisfying that to be out and to know that straight away yeah. your record has gone into into the databases. That's just yeah. absolutely fantastic. I mean, there's sometimes when I'm out doing the flower insect time counts that we have through the pollinator monitoring scheme at um, the Centre for College of Hydrology. I'm I'm I often record on paper then and then come back in and and put it online. But for the biological records of what I'm seeing, where I'm seeing it when I'm seeing it I always use the iRecord app yeah because they do have things that where you can lock you know the site and maybe not the grid reference if you're moving around the site but uh, which I find extremely handy especially when recording lots of the same thing or I'd survey for scarce emerald damselfly on a couple of sites and you know if I'm just recording them but I can guarantee you I find something interesting enough to unlock it <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. you know it makes it easier doesn't it I mean, have you tried the new butterfly app where you can do timed counts and all kinds of things that that might oh, be yeah. of interest to some of your listeners as well particularly now as yeah. um, I saw should have mentioned that in my exciting wildlife sightings I saw my first brimstone a few oh, days ago yeah that was really lovely um, but that's that's worth looking at the iRecord Butterfly app. I should declare here, of course, as well, that I work for the organisation that produces these apps and mm. other things are available, but I do think they work tremendously well and we get a lot of positive feedback from both the recorders, but also those people who are verifying the records behind the scenes. For some reason, I get, a, because I've got a weird sense of humour, I take great amusement in verifying my own records. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. It just makes me laugh. I always have that. I always have that because I do sometimes and then sometimes I leave them for Pete to verify. Yeah. yeah <laughs> I would. I think I would. I think I want someone else. sort of ruining the whole verifying thing. Oh, I think it's absolutely fine. I mean, yeah. it's, it was. It seems yeah. peculiar for me should, not to verify my own seven spots. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Oh, did I actually see that? Yes, I did. <laughs> I don't think I've picked up a mistake yet that I've made or no one else has as well. You've rejected uh, one of your own records. Yeah, that'd be quite funny if I did that. Um, I, I'd, oh, did I have to correct the site on one? I think I think I'd forgot to unlock the site name. I went, oh, whoops, and then did that. While we're talking about brimstones, what is your first sign of spring? I think I know I can guess what it's going to be. Well, so it would definitely have been seeing a seven-spot ladybird, but mm. I've been seeing them all through the winter this winter. Yeah, so that you know that, and that isn't the case every winter that we see. I mean, I guess we've all been out walking a lot more because of staying in our local areas and things like that. So maybe we have been out seeing more. It's when it's quite quite mild that the seven spots are much more visible because they're up on the vegetation rather than down in the leaf litter. But certainly when they come out in huge numbers, that will definitely be the first sign of spring. But actually that brimstone, it's kind of taken it away from the seven spots this year, hasn't it? Because it, it's appeared. So maybe it's more about all of the different things we see at once. It's not yeah. a it's not a one thing. Oh, I, I go because I don't want it to be swallowed or whatever it is that all the common people go you know common choice i always went for bee fly and that's before i knew oh that. yeah <laughs> i yeah i would absolutely I love say oh yeah i mean again wonderful to see the bee flies i'm i think that what's just really wonderful about this time of year is you just start to see all of these things beginning to stir and it's just mm. fantastic and you know that you've kind of got this festival of the next few months and i always feel this real sense of sadness as we're going into autumn and then early winter oh, where too, yeah. everything's sort of settling down and even if I am going to see the odd seven spot here and there I know that I'm not going to see as much as I have done over I'm the spring exactly and the summer. Same. I call it um, entomologist sad 
Yeah. Because yeah. we know it's the maximum time between weekdays. Because in, in autumn, you've still got a few insects and stuff around, but it's the maximum time until you get another May peak, as I, I call it. That's why May is my favourite month. Cause yeah, no, it's like, wonderful. Not all the dragonflies are out, but not and not all the butterflies are out, but it's probably the peak of the most species and all the scorpion flies and cardinal beetles and everything are everywhere. So, uh, and I felt yeah. quite sad last year when the bee flies had sort of had their mm. peak flying time and then they were really starting. quick last year. It did. It seemed to be really quick. I absolutely agree. And I was just absolutely loving seeing them when we're out and about on our day. It was at the time when we could just have the one hour outside and that one hour in that first part of lockdown just seemed to be filled with bee flies which was absolutely fantastic i think a couple come and join me in my garden i think i seem to remember erica exploding with excitement when some landed in her garden as well which they probably seeks her out if they've had anything any sense because she loves them to bits and coincidentally in the absence of my normal i'll sneak this in here now i don't advert for the next episode uh, in absence of my normal co-host i've uh, drafted erica in with, with with the um carrot that is talking about bee flies so um, <laughs> Because I love them to bits as well. So, yeah, that should be good. Erica and I yesterday on Twitter had a had a short little battle over what was cuter, a bee fly or a 24-spot ladybird larva. We, yes, I haven't added it up, but I've just got this awful feeling that Erica won, well, the bee fly won. But that makes Erica the winner. Yeah, I have to, I have to, well, you know, that that's uh, Amateur Intellectual Society President versus um, Rowan. (laughs) I was going to ask you about that later. Do you two have like fisticuffs in alleys behind entomological conferences and stuff? (laughs) I, I love chatting between the different um, yeah. entomologists. And actually yesterday was a viral lecture and um, it's a big entomology lecture. And if you didn't hear it, it's going to be posted online. So look out for that on the oh, Royal yeah. Entomological Society website because it was Erica and she was showing the most amazing photos and talking us through the world of flies. It was just absolutely incredible as the president of the Royal Entomological Society introducing Erica as the president of the Amateur Entomological Society <laughs> and yeah, coleopterous meets dipterist as well. So it was a an exciting time. <laughs> I've just got a bizarre image then of you two arguing, and then Helen Smith from the PA British British Arachnological Society coming in. Because <laughs> yeah. I know Helen as well. So <laughs> oh, so never mind. That'd be quite a oh, three three very lovely people. Oh, there we go. Who would never do anything like that? But this is a weird image in my head. Uh, right. So let's get back. I like good tangents like that. That's always good tangents. I think that's what people tune in for the tangents on the topic, I swear, sometimes. <laughs> but the, so you've mentioned the larva of the ladybirds there. They are, well, they shock some people when I point out that that's a baby ladybird. So dumb it down a little bit. Because <laughs> they look oh, yeah. nothing like them, do they? No, I think it's... I, I've always feel quite envious when people are getting that information for the first Mm. time because it is just incredible to see a ladybird larva for the first time and because they look so very very different to the adults so just like butterflies ladybirds go through a complete metamorphosis so there's an egg which hatches out into a teeny tiny larva which I have to say they are so adorably cute when they're tiny and when I was doing my PhD studies I reared lots and lots of ladybirds and I never tired of seeing the little ladybird larvae hatching from their eggs because they're just absolutely exquisite and then they they grow up to look quite monstrous most of them other than the 24 spot ladybird larva which is utterly adorable but lots of them become quite large long grub-like beasts and they have six legs so that 
that's a resemblance to the adults, but I think that's pretty much the only resemblance they have to an adult. And um, many of them are quite well physically defended, so they can be quite spiky or quite bristly. Some of them have um, some colour pattern markings. But on the UK Ladybird Survey website, we have a, a chart that people can download as a PDF that has all of the larvae on because there is this point of the year when, so we're going to start seeing now the adult ladybirds emerging from winter and they will begin to reproduce. And as soon as they have reproduced and laid their eggs, they will then die. That generation will then die. So there's a period of time when we only really have the ladybird larvae around, but it's still people can be recording because the larvae are quite easy to identify. There's a few where it's a little bit tricky and every year you kind of have to get your eye in again because they're only around for this quite short time. But please do record them during that time. It's great for us to have records of the um, juveniles as well. And then they pupate and I think the pupate pupae are relatively easy to identify. Some of them have quite amazing sort of sculptured structures along their side and different colorations. And so again, take a look out for those. And from that pupa emerges the adult. Yeah. And, and they, they, I know the seven spot, they're yellow when they first come out, aren't they? They are. Oh, that is just, I mean, that's so Back in 1976, when I was just six years old, and other people who may be a similar age to me may well remember that year as being this amazing ladybird year. The numbers were really, really high of particularly seven-spot ladybirds, but also 11-spot ladybirds as well. And age six, I remember being in my back garden and seeing the adults emerging from their pupae because there were so many of them you could see them in all these different life stages and just captivating to see some of them this really translucent yellow color and it takes a while then for the spots to lay down and for the red coloration for the seven spots and the black spots to appear so that happens sort of over 24 hours so over that 24 hours you can see that color develop I mean I have been known to bring a pupa in and have it on my desk so that I can then watch the adult emerge and see the colors develop as I sit there working and um, yeah and then let it go again but it's yeah they're just amazing oh fantastic i have i've tried to rear um slight change topic but i've tried to rear diving beetle larva but i can oh. never get them I, I get them up to i put them in a tank with mud in and they just don't seem to get to the point where they climb out they just seem to just keel over i've got loads of food so i must be doing and i've stopped doing it because i need to do some more research on it but when they pupate when they first emerge the diving beetles are bright orange Wow, at the great day, which is really cool. I really want to. See, there's a really nice book with some pictures in it, and I, so I'd like they, to have a go myself. Maybe they need. Do they have something in there to easily climb out on? Because I find with um, mm, ladybirds be. when they first emerge from their pupa, they need quite a bit of space, and they need to be able to climb up something or move onto something, so they can really stretch out and they can really expand their wing cases and their yeah. membranous wings. And if they can't do that, they mm. they just struggle. Yeah, I, I can't get them to um, because the larvae in the water and then they need to go on the land to pupate so it, obviously something's going wrong in the transition yeah, stage or or maybe they maybe the amount of food I put, I put loads of food in but they're so voracious um <laughs> maybe i'm still not putting enough in i don't know because whatever you put in just disappear by the next day with those yeah but that, that brings us neatly on to um ladybirds diets now the seven spot there's that fantastic cartoon and i tried to find out who drew it of two people looking at two lovely ladybirds going oh aren't they so cute and sweet and then it zooms in and there's these two 
ladybirds slaughtering through hundreds of aphids, like ferocious predators that they are. But if I go straight on to the question, it's probably the way going to... Uh, James Hunter asks, we always hear how good they are at hoovering up aphids on your veg plants. I was wondering, are ladybirds quite specific in their taste or will they eat anything they can get their hands on or, or insect equivalent? <laughs> Yeah, no, really excellent question. And different ladybirds eat different things. And not all of the ladybirds are predatory. So this little 24 spot that I keep mentioning feeds on plants. So there are a few that are plant feeding ladybirds. And we've talked about the 16 spot. And that's a mildew feeding ladybird as is the orange ladybird and the 22 spot ladybird. So most of them are predatory, but not all of them. And then those that are predatory, some feed on aphids and some feed on scale insects. So we mentioned as well earlier on the pine ladybird, that's a scale insect feeding ladybird. The seven spot ladybird is an aphid feeding ladybird. But I have to say, they don't just stop at feeding on pest insects quite often. They can be quite generalist. And the seven-spot ladybird and, and many of the others will eat each other. They'll have a go at um, caterpillars. So their preference would be to feed on aphids, but they will take the opportunity to find other protein as well. So I think, yeah, that cartoon is quite right. They they are really lovely, but they are voracious predators. And Actually, in terms of on on the gardens, what people really want is a whole variety of different things that eat their aphids because the seven spot ladybirds, as much as I love them, can be a little bit bumbly and not really necessarily the best predators in terms of controlling aphids for someone in their garden. So what people really want to do is also have parasitic wasps, to have hoverflies, to have lacewings, to have a whole diverse range of predatory insects. So they're all feeding on on their aphids. I've, I've heard, I hate to bring in the feathered things, but blue tits are maybe quite good at eating aphids. Yeah, I've heard yes. as well. yeah, yeah. And I, I think dragonflies, all kinds of um, predatory animals. And, and the ladybirds play their part for sure, but they can't keep up with the aphids on their own because aphids have a, a, a life cycle, which is very, very rapid. So I've, I've also read a lot of aphids because I've read a lot of ladybirds and the ladybirds need a lot of aphids to feed on. And the aphids will go through their life cycle at a sort of moderate temperature and it is temperature dependent um, within about 10 days. Whereas the ladybirds, it's about five weeks for them to go from egg to adult. Mm. So they just can't keep up with the pace of um, the, the aphid reproduction. Yeah, because aphids are born pregnant, aren't they? I think they are. So they have different stages. I love the life cycles of aphids. So they have their asexual stage where what's amazing is that the mothers have inside them their daughters and their granddaughters. So they have this telescoping generations, it's called. They're like little Russian dolls. So they give birth to their live young and those live young already inside them have their daughters and their granddaughters. And then they can also, they have a sexual cycle and lay eggs. And, and that can be a strategy that they use to get through the winter that they, they lay some aphid eggs. And that's um, the resilient stage for the winter months for some species. And one thing I always drew correlation with them is uh, water fleas or cladiocerans, what you want to call oh, them. Oh, yes. Because they have asexual stages where the females just keep spitting out, giving birth to 10 females and give birth to 10 females, which is why you get those huge, great pink swarms when you have an algae bloom of, yeah. of water fleas. And then as the pond starts to degrade or starts to dry out, uh, the males are born and then they create a drought-resistant egg cocoon. So, so it's a, oh, 
nature's just awesome. <laughs> you just you have just reminded me of when I was a, a teenager. I was really fortunate that at my secondary school we used to go on these natural history camps. We had this really enthusiastic wow. biology teacher who had a lot of natural history friends, and we would go to this nature reserve, which was kind of cut off because there was a firing range of an army camp at the other end of it, um, and we would go and camp for a couple of weeks. And there were no there was nothing there in the way of showers or anything like that. We would be swimming in in the sea and we would be collecting water from um, some of the ponds and as a, a very well-meaning vegetarian teenager I noticed that these people had collected their water in tins and put them over the fire to warm up ready to to wash with and I saw all of the little water fleas bobbing up and down as the temperature was warming and I thought we can't have this at all so I took all of the tins and the water back to the to the ponds as this well-meaning teenager who was then not very popular with all the people who then didn't have any water to be washing in <laughs> particularly not the biology teacher who was not yeah. very happy about that but you wouldn't want to wash your water if it had dense water fleas you definitely want to be washing in these. Oh. I, I don't, yeah I, it was such a wonderful time we were so yeah. fortunate that that, that he brilliant. would yeah it was it was brilliant we would do small mammal trapping and bat watching and entomology and botany and just absolutely amazing wow that sounds brilliant. Yeah, we've got one more question, which is from Emma Hine, which sort of possibly links into this diet question as well, actually. How much of a threat do invasive ladybirds pose to our native ladybird species? That's a really excellent question. And the harlequin ladybird is the, the most well-known new arrival. And it's a large ladybird and um, native to a large range across Asia and it had been introduced to a number of countries as a biological control agent because it actually is a really good aphid feeder. But unfortunately, it also will feed on many other things as well. So it'll feed on a lot of different ladybirds. It's very, very well chemically defended. So not many things eat it in return. And people will be aware that probably they've been sharing their houses through the winter months with harlequin ladybirds because they come into the buildings to spend the winter. And they come in in quite large numbers. So we can often have 200 or more in our window frames. And at the moment, they're just starting to stir. So in the room where I'm home working at the moment, I'm often visited by a harlequin ladybird that's just stirring from um, the window frames. And we are concerned about the threat that they pose to um, other species. And we were able to use these amazing records that people have been sending in for such a long time to look at whether we could see any patterns changing as a consequence of the arrival of the harlequin ladybird in other ladybirds. And what we showed was that we looked at eight native ladybirds and seven of those eight were showing distribution declines so that they weren't in as many places as they had been. And it was really strongly correlated with the harlequin ladybird being out and about with them. And the harlequin will feed on the other ladybirds, but it also outcompetes them as well. So really what we're wanting to look at now is what does that mean in terms of that community and how all of those different ladybirds are kind of their, their different roles that they're playing in, for example, controlling pest insects. And, and that's what we really don't know. But what we do know is in some urban areas now, about 80% of the ladybirds or 90% in some places of the ladybirds that people see are harlequin ladybirds. 
word. So there's been a massive shift in the kind of community composition, so to speak, um, as a consequence of the Harlequin ladybird arriving. So there's lots more for us to find out about it. And for sure, people's records that they send in to us help us a great deal. But yes, that particular species does pose a threat to biodiversity. But there are other non-native ladybirds that have arised. So the bryony ladybird, some mm. people may have heard of the bryony ladybird, and it only feeds on white bryony. For people like me, and I'm sure hopefully many of your listeners, it's just an absolute delight to see it. It's a beautiful, slightly fuzzy, hairy ladybird, um, quite large, but it only feeds on white bryony. So I think, you know, each of the different new arrivals, we really need to be thinking about the consequences that they they might have. And thankfully, in most cases, there won't be any impacts at all. But for some of them, such as the Harlequin ladybird, unfortunately, there will be. Yeah, no, I'm lucky I've got a white brownie rich site with brownie ladybird uh, down the road oh, at Rainer nice. Marshes. Lovely. So, uh, um, I, I, you've probably come across Yvonne's records, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah yes. You know, yeah, yes. she's yeah, she, she showed me them. I was very lucky. So it's a lovely lady, Yvonne. Um, they, ha- they have lovely larvae as well, I have to say. Have I seen the larvae? I, she, I might have seen Captive. If, if Yvonne was there, <laughs> she'd probably show me because she's she's one of these ridiculously enthusiastic people, um, which I've been accused of, actually. So they were accused. <laughs> that's not the right word. Um, been told I am as well. But uh, yeah, oh, fantastic. It's always good to have someone like that on a site like that. She's always finding new, she's found a new species of cricket for Essex and a new species oh, of bug from the UK and she's just surveying constantly <laughs> puts me yeah. to shame <laughs> oh it's fantastic yeah well I mean we could talk about ladybirds forever uh, but one question I, I will get you to put to bed is the question I always get asked and I'm pretty sure I know the answer but I'll ask you anyway the yellow ladybirds they're the poisonous ones that's an urban myth isn't it so all ladybirds have a cocktail of chemicals within them that mean they taste a bit horrible so this is their defensive um, secretions and so the the yellow ladybird no more than any of the others but actually all of them have a slightly different kind of chemical cocktail so the harlequin ladybird has quite a nasty cocktail it tastes really horrible and there are others so the little two-spot ladybird doesn't taste so terrible at all and it's all to do with their sort of chemical composition of the different types of alkaloids they have within them but they all have those alkaloids and some people have reported seeing for example swallows and swifts birds feeding on the wing spitting out a ladybird because it will exude this it's called reflex bleeding it exudes this substance and that substance is full of those chemicals that do taste really horrible but anybody who's been out doing field work and handling ladybirds Mm. will have had a a first-hand experience of those chemicals you can't help but smell it on your hands at the end of the day if you've been out recording ladybirds all day and if you are having your lunch while you're out and about you also can't help but taste the ladybirds at times on your hands that you may have well have been handling and I can definitely say from first-hand experience that um, some taste a lot worse than others. Yeah I don't think I've ever tasted it I can't remember if it was Nick Baker or George McGavin or somebody was talking about it tasting horrible to me. I've, I've I tell you, quite... the worst one is kidney spot. It is absolutely yeah. dreadful. So that one, I had their reflex 
blood on my hands. And it just, I couldn't get rid of the taste. It was really, really foul. Whereas I've had cream spot ladybird on my hands and found it relatively pleasant. I mean, I wouldn't go out and taste it on purpose, but it was, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't unpleasant. You're going to have to do your version of the, was it the Smicked Pain Index, the Roy, <laughs> the Roy Taste Index for Ladyverse? I think I, do, I, I, I think I would do okay. Maybe I need a little bit of practice for some species, but yeah. I, I definitely would get kidney spot. That's for sure. Have you got any PhD students you can use? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's allowed. <laughs> Oh, brilliant. Uh, some desperate postgrads, I don't know. <laughs> I don't seriously condone abusing your postgrads, <laughs> in case anyone's wondering. But yes, um, oh dear, what a silly idea. As your, um, I was going to say, Prime Minister of the Royal, President of the Royal Entomological Society, would you like to sort of explain the sort of things they do and what they get up to? I think oh, Ash has yeah. covered it slightly, but... Yeah, yeah, no, well, it would be wonderful if people wanted to join the Royal Entomological Society. So, and at the moment, if any of your listeners are students, they can join, have their first year free of charge. And so nothing to lose there. I would definitely... I've joined, I've been a, a member for a very long time and it's a wonderful society, a fantastic community of people, lovely people like Erica and Ashley, who you've spoken with. And there's a magazine that comes out on a regular basis. We have all kinds of meetings. We have special interest group meetings. So if you have an interest in behavior or if you have an interest in insects and computing, there will be something there for you. Behavior, aphids, we've talked about aphids. There's a whole special interest group on aphids. So many special interest groups and they all have regular meetings and they're just a really lovely, lively place to go. And Ashley has hosted the outreach special interest group meetings. That was absolutely fantastic. When I went along to the one Mm. she hosted in Edinburgh, we also coordinate Insect Week and there will be an Insect Week this year. It used to be every other year, but we're moving towards having it every year because we should be celebrating insects all the time. And that's a fantastic partnership event with many, many people getting involved and having so many different activities um, throughout that time. And we also have an insect festival. We have fantastic people going out and talking to schools and doing outreach events. And it's all about promoting entomology and celebrating entomology and entomologists and it's just a really wonderful community to be part of and yeah please join because it will only be more wonderful with more people joining oh i need to get i haven't joined either the royal or oh you must I've well, got you, to do you should to do fill it, in the form now just do I'll it straight away do it I'll be, I'll, i will be looking out for that for your application now <laughs> I, only, um, I got cornered by helen smith and um her Colleague, colleagues, fellow members on the BIS stand at Bird Fair <laughs> to join up. <laughs> but that's that's the thing. There I, I are lots off, of yeah. there are lots of societies and lots of groups to join, and and I think that's one what's so wonderful. You know, there is something there for everyone, and you know, organisations like the Dipterous Forum, the Beeswax Dance Coding Society, as you've mentioned, the British Arachnological Society. There's all the the Dragonfly Society. Yeah. There's many many fantastic groups to join. Yeah, um, yeah, it is absolutely brilliant. But do well, take a look at the Royal Entomological Society and take a look on their website and, and see if it's it's something for you. But even if you decide not to join, which I very much hope you will all join, do take a look at the events because you're very welcome along, whether a member or, or not a member. So get involved with the society. We'd be really delighted to welcome you. Ooh, fantastic. 
Well, I think I could talk to you all evening, Helen, but <laughs> I think that seems like a good place to wrap up. But thank you so much for joining, joining us, Helen. Um, that's absolutely fascinating. I've, I've certainly learned some stuff this evening. I'd never really thought about what happens to ladybirds after they've laid the eggs. I just sort of, I think I just assumed they kept going. But yeah, makes sense. That's what most insects do, isn't it? If they have a winter as adults, they lay their eggs and then that's it. But um, I never really thought of it. So that's good. Good to know. So if people want to uh, find you online, Helen, where's the best place to look for you? And well, they can visit the UK Ladybird Survey website, which is um, part of the Coleoptera website and they can find links to that through the Biological Records Centre website but also perhaps download the iRecord app and get recording. We do have a European Ladybird app so if people want to have an app that also has a field guide within it then you can download the European Ladybird recording app as well and links to all of that, all of those apps are within the Biological Records Centre and they're all free to download and yeah again another great community to be part of just to be part of that recording community Community. but yeah that's where they can find out more about um the ladybirds yeah, and you're on twitter too aren't you i am on twitter too so at uk ladybirds on twitter I, I i love twitter i think it's absolutely fantastic for natural history and i always if people will want to post photos and have some help with identification twitter is a great place to go and i really love identifying um ladybirds for people but there are also lots of other people there just waiting to identify your sightings yeah Excellent. I 100% agree with that. Yeah, there are some bad sides to Twitter, like on social media, but it's worth putting up with just for the natural history stuff, I find. Yeah, it's um, great. Yeah, brilliant. So I haven't really got any news other than I've already mentioned Erica coming on on the next episode. Um, one last bit of news I might mention is it's looking like we might, might, big emphasis on the might there, actually have an on-site episode coming up possibly next month. So... Cross your fingers for me. <laughs> if it all goes to plan, we'll, we'll be doing that. I'll tell you more near the time. But yes, well, thanks again, Helen. Thanks for joining us. And uh, it's goodbye from me. So see you next time, everybody. My absolute pleasure. Bye from me as well. Thank you for listening to the UK Wildlife Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then please do subscribe and leave a review for us on Apple Podcast or whichever podcast service you use. You can follow us on Twitter at UK Wildlife Pod, or one word. Or on Instagram at UK Wildlife Podcast. And like us on our Facebook page, UK Wildlife Podcast. And you can also post to the UK Wildlife Podcast community group. Or if you would like to share your wildlife news or sightings with us on Instagram or Twitter, then please tag us in the post and use the hashtag UK Wildlife Podcast. This episode was edited by Oscar Henderson. You can find him on Instagram at oscar.creates.